0: I would like to ask, do you have a favourite way to think about God? Perhaps it's a, uh, a particular term that you might use for God. I think some, some people, sometimes we have a tendency to gravitate towards specific titles. Some people, it might be, hey, big daddy. Uh, it could be king of kings, Yahweh, heavenly father, saviour. I wonder, is there a particular one for you? A uh, few others, some we've come across in our series. Jehovah Jireh, our provider. Jehovah El Roy, the God who sees. Do you have a title that you like to use? I, uh, I have one particular person that I can think of who, um, you know her title because it comes out in her prayer. Um, and so when we would pray together, it would come out, you know, so perhaps you... This might be you. Perhaps this uh, this might be someone else that you can think of. It might be a prayer like, Dear Lord Jesus, Most Holy One. God, thank you for being our Most Holy One. And dear Jesus, Most Holy One, we ask for this. Oh, thank you, dear Lord Jesus, Most Holy And it comes out in the rhetoric a little bit. That's not a bad thing. It's, it's good to be able to strongly identify with our God. Um... The reason why I talk about this is uh, often the way we tend to identify with God often says a little bit about perhaps where we are, where we're at, where we've come from, our journey. Um, And so there's a bit more to it than just a title, but it reflects an understanding in our minds. It's an important literary feature to understand because it can help us understand what's going on in the Scriptures a lot more. So, for instance, when I, myself personally, when I'm saying prayers to, do, to seek peace, often I'll pray to the Prince of Peace. That makes sense? Hopefully. The reason I bring this up is because throughout the whole book of Malachi, as we come to the end of our series... Throughout the whole book of Malachi, you may or may not have noticed again and again the same title is used Lord Almighty, Lord Almighty, Lord Almighty. It's used 20 times in the book of Malachi. There's barely four chapters. I say barely because cha- chapter one's not very long, chapter four isn't very long. Okay, so there's barely four chapters and it occurs. 20 times, okay? There's 55 verses. So it means the term Lord Almighty occurs nearly every third verse. So there's something here. What is the greater understanding that is being communicated with this specific title? Lord Almighty. It traditionally means Lord of hosts. And it's a royal title, okay? Now, this, t- this title is first used in uh, the first chapter of the f- first book of Samuel. Before all the kingship is set up, uh, before um, those things are set in course, before Israel get right down the track of, of uh, king after king after king, this title is introduced, That God is the Lord of hosts. He is the royal one. He is the one above all who is uh, looking after everything. And from that point, that title is used throughout the kingship. And it's a reminder of, yes, you have these people in these positions, but don't forget who your Lord Almighty is, who your Lord of hosts is, the Royal one, the one who sits at the left hand side of my throne. Don't forget me. It's a strong message, it's a heartbeat all the way through, reminding them, reminding them. And as we come at the end of Malachi thinking about the best is yet to come, knowing that the New Testament is about to start, knowing that Jesus is about to be born in Bethlehem, just as we come to Christmas, just as we focus on other things and other powers and authorities. He is our Lord Almighty. He is the Lord of hosts who is above all. The royal priesthood, the royal one is coming. The best is yet to come. It's been the series, and this is our last morning in it. It's been a series about hope of, well, things aren't all that they should be. God is preparing something better. And while the whole series has been thinking about looking forward, there's more to come. Set your eyes on me. Set your eyes on the horizon. This morning, and all of Malachi, leads up to this last part. And so this morning, we're not just thinking about the best is yet to come. We're thinking about the present, the right now. If the best is yet to come, what does that mean for us right now? So we're going to read the end of chapter 3 because it holds the pivotal point for us. So, we looked at a tiny bit of it last week. We're going to look at the end of chapter 3 and read chapter 4 together. It says, They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them, just, in, uh, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Between those who serve God and those who do not. And then chapter four. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every, uh, every evildoer will be stubble. And that day is coming will, uh, will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. There will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. And then Malachi and God leave some concluding remarks. One, uh, one of my favorite TV shows as a teen, and I'll admit Sarah and I are re-watching it at the while I'm re-watching it, I'm making Sarah watch it for the first time. Uh, it was a show called Glee. Okay. I, did anyone watch Glee by any chance? Oh there's Oh great. Thank, thank you that I'm not the only one, okay. <laughs> um, Glee uh, like many other shows of, of, their, um, of their, their type is about high school in America. But really, I think it's a great reflection of, of the high school experience all across the world. Uh, it's about mu- uh, kids who like musical theatre and how uh, they enjoy music and really because of that, um, they, they, they're at the bottom of the food chain. And, uh, and so the, the, the two things is uh, I loved it because it was, it was about music and I enjoyed the music. It was just fun and the harmonies and all that stuff. Uh, but the other aspect of the show was about the social life for the teenager. And uh, in a lot of ways, it was, a, it was about a class system. And so uh, at the school, you had the jocks, the sporty people, uh, you know, and they, they held a certain position. And you had uh, different people of ne- ethnicity. And in the show, it's, it's really played up as a joke. But, oh, well, you, if, if you're of that ethnicity, you, you, need, you need to hang out with your own people. That's just the way things go in high school. Uh, you have the the band people aren't really noticed. Um, you can imagine what it's like. Okay, there's all these different stereotypes, and and it plays on it for humour, but it also takes that opportunity to really speak into the untruths and the, and the hurts that that come in these times of of high school. Um, I wonder if you can imagine what it was like at your time in a high school. Did you have some of those, uh, those class wars when it comes to who you were? Perhaps you might have been the nerd or the geek or the person who, 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 who liked to play weird board games. Hello. <laughs> um, perhaps you were the goody two-shoes. Maybe you were the rebel. Maybe you were the bully. Maybe the only identity you had at school was you were the one who was bullied and you were the easy target. We've had these distinctions. And we, we, it's hard because we carry these distinctions, these, these, these ideas we have in our head that really don't matter, but we actually carry them with us for ages. Can you, can you think, potentially what people saw you as, how they defined you, how they distinguished you. Can you think to yourself perhaps different ways you've thought and distinguished others? These distinctives. I think sometimes these distinctives get in the way of us as adults sometimes. You know, uh, we'll invite that one neighbour who we know that loves Bathurst to come around and watch because we know that they love Bathurst just like we do. But we won't be bothered to invite other people. Oh, well, I don't know if they're going to be keen anyway. I know I've had it many times. Uh, Generally, if you have glasses, and and these are stereotypes, but I've found if you have glasses, if you're perhaps of an an Asian or an Indian descent, uh, you must be good at computers. You must be really handy at computers. Hey, uh, are you good at computers? Could you help me with this? Why do you think that of me? Why didn't you go ask somebody else? Just because I have glasses. It is true, though, if you have glasses, you are smarter than everyone else. Um, (laughs) And we might think, oh, no, I don't give in to some of those stereotypes. Stereotypes. Oh, that's not me. But there's, there are these crazy uh, things that we make, these tiny, tiny assumptions we don't even realise we're making. And, and it somehow defines and distinguishes people in our minds. The Lord of hosts doesn't see us for any of these distinctions. He doesn't even distinguish us by our mistakes, He doesn't hold that against us. He doesn't let those things even box us in. But he does make one distinction. There is one distinction he does hold to. At the end of chapter 3, it tells us God makes the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. We see into chapter 4 that this distinction, those who are willing to serve God, that's how he clarifies it as righteous or wicked. He clarifies it as those who will serve God and those who will not serve God. This is the defining thing for as we read chapter 4. For the tragedy that we read in some of those verses and for the blessing as well. This is the defining distinction. Now, although it says this, it's contrary to what many people believe. And there's a TV sh- another TV show, The Good Place. It's a-, a more recent TV show than Glee. It's on Netflix. Has anyone seen The Good Place? Wow, well, that's a couple of more hands. The good place is set up in the beginning as the idea of someone goes to uh, heaven that doesn't belong there. And then they explain that, well, the reason you, you've got here and everyone else is here, it's, it's a point system. So that if, if you do a little good thing, then you get a, a little bit amount of points for you. And if you do a little bad thing, you get some negative points. And if it's a really good thing, then you get lots of... And and at the end, when you die, if you've got enough points, then you go to heaven. And that's a popular belief with Christians and non-Christians alike. That you know what? If I just do enough good things, enough right things, then she'll be sweet. But it's not what God says here. Another belief, uh, which which is uh, quite popular, I think, is that all you need to do is believe in Jesus and you'll go to heaven. James 2, verse 19, it reminds us, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. If all it took was belief in God, well, all the demonic forces and Satan and everything on that side, they know who God is. They know who Jesus is. But surely we don't expect them to be the ones we're sitting next to in heaven. How, does, how, how can we balance this thought? Because we use the scripture for God so loved the world John 3:16 that he gave his one and only son so that whoever may believe in him will not perish and have eternal life. We know that one so well I think it's the most popular verse in the Bible across the world that people know. But how do we sit this in balance with the rest of God's word? I know one of my pet hates uh, for people who don't call themselves Christians is when they take scripture out of context. They'll pull the smallest scripture from wherever that works for them and goes, ah, but if you're really a Christian, how come you're not doing this thing that's it's said in this funny verse in the back roads of the Bible? How, how can you be a Christian if you're not doing that one? Where's the context? We as Christians, I think, also are guilty of going, you know what, I'm just gonna take this one verse, and it's gonna mean the world. We need to also take these scriptures in context. John three, sixteen is the first of a paragraph in our in our uh, in our modern day Christian Bible. It says at the end of that paragraph, verse 21, um, Verse 21, whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, the light that is Jesus, so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Whoever lives by the truth. So all of a sudden we start with this idea of belief. And it is where it all starts. It is essential. We can't go to heaven without belief. But we also then end this prose here, this this paragraph, talking about how we live. Now, as I said with the previous belief, it's not about what we do to get to heaven. It's not an act of works. But in James, it brings us the balance that what we do, how we live our lives, reflects the faith that we must have. That our faith outworks through what we do. And so our works are not the way to get to heaven, but it's a byproduct of the faith that we have in our lives. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he identifies exactly who Jesus is. And Jesus commends him for that. And then he says, now just leave all that you have behind and follow me. And the rich young man goes away saddened because he realises he can't do that. That's too much for him to give up. Despite all that he could profess for Jesus, he still walks away from Jesus. We can believe But if we don't choose to follow, if we don't choose to live our our life, then what is that reflecting our, our belief? Does it really reflect that we have a Saviour who came to die on the cross for us, who gave it all up for us, and we're willing to give nothing back, to give nothing in our actions? Do we believe in exactly all that Jesus is? I made mention a few weeks ago that some believe that since God is a loving God, then at some point in time, everyone will end up in heaven anyway. A person I've really enjoyed some of the studies of big Christian uh, name Rob Bell. I've really enjoyed some of the, especially his young adult studies and leading some of those things. But it shocked me to discover one day that he's actually the biggest proponent, I think, in the Christian world that you know what. Maybe there might be punishment for some, for some degree of time. But in the end, he would say they all end up in heaven. But that's not what God says here. There is a distinction, one distinction that God says. He says, no, he draws a line in the sand and says that there is a distinction, a determining factor for how people will spend eternity. The only distinction he makes is between the righteous and the wicked, and he defines it as those who serve God and those who do not. Jesus' first coming. We see the effect of the distinction uh, happen. No matter their background, no matter the labels people had put on them, no matter uh, what society had to say about the individual, no matter the wrongs in their past, uh, whoever came to Jesus and was prepared to put everything else aside, he embraced. But those who were not willing to be humble, those who weren't willing to let go, those who put more value in what they wanted, Instead of what God wanted. Those people who are more interested in serving themselves than serving God. They went away and missed out on the blessing. We're in the exact same position. We know the best is yet to come. We know that Jesus is going to come again. And so we have to be faced, not now thinking about the future, but in the present right now. To consider who are we serving Who do you serve? Do you put serving God above serving yourself? Do you put serving God above serving others? I think some people cut out God as the middleman and go, you know, if I just serve others, that's going to please God. No, no, no. We've got to come to God first and serve him. And through him, we serve others. Who do you serve? The truth of your answer will make a huge difference on your eternity. The end times, uh, it draws a lot of questions, doesn't it? Do you wonder what it'll be like in those days when Jesus returns? What are you going to see? What's that trumpet call going to sound like? Are you going to get to see the horses? There's all sorts of questions. So many question marks. You can even have a, a, a go at reading Revelation. You go, you know what, that's, that's where we get a lot of it from. And I, to be honest, I still come away from that going, you know what, there's so much more I don't know about what's going to happen than what I can tell. It gives you ideas. It gives you a, a feeling of how things might be when he returns. But even experts are left grasping for something concrete. Why is that? Why isn't it spelled out clearly for us? I uh, I actually think in some contexts, ignorance is bliss. As a degree that we don't need to know all the details. We don't need to know how it's going to occur exactly, when it's going to occur, because many people have tried that and have failed. But what I think we do know is what we need to know. We might not have an idea exactly of what things will be like when Jesus returns, but what is spelled out clearly for us is the decision and the state of our lives that needs to be for when he returns. I think about uh, my car. I don't know everything about my car. You might be surprised. I know there's perhaps some pistons in there, some valves maybe, I don't know, sprockets, um, camshafts, uh, wheels... Ah, I know there's some wheels in the car somewhere. Uh, I know where the wheels are. Um, I don't know everything that goes on in my car, Okay, I don't know the details. My dad would not love to hear this, Okay, But he knows that I don't know, uh, despite many attempts to educate me. My mechanic, though, let me tell you about my mechanic. I think he's a legend. If you need a good mechanic, I think I've found one coming to town. Ask me. He's, I, I enjoy the friendship. When he fixes something, he, he tells me just enough information so that I know he hasn't ripped me off. Uh, he, he shows me what's come out and see how that looks rubbish. You know, so so I'm not, you know, so he's kind in that way. He's also gracious enough that he explains just enough for me to go, okay, I roughly get what you're talking about. And he tells me just enough so that I know exactly what I should be doing with my car. E.g., you know, or listen, with these changes, you might want to be slowly braking when you come to intersections. Or now, since that's wearing away, we don't have to replace it yet, but perhaps this is the way you want to change the way you're driving your car. So he's gracious enough to give me that, but he doesn't go into all the detail. And I really appreciate that. Because, like, you know how it is. It's just in one ear, out the other. I don't really care. And I don't actually need to know some of the intricate pieces. But I do, know, need, I do need to know what I need to do. My car is going to get me from A to B. What do I need to do to see that happen? And I think that's exactly what God does. You don't need to know all the details. But God gives us just enough to know how... And what we need to do to get from A to heaven. Malachi 4. So it says, after this distinction, surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day is coming, uh, that that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. So that's one consequence of the distinction. The second, but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the storm then you will trample down the wicked. There will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. The image of Jesus here is the Son of Righteousness. And I think it's a terrific metaphor and a terrific title for Jesus in the context of the passage here. There's a massive contrast in the blessing that can come from the sun and also the disaster that can come from the sun as well. A few of the pros that comes from an idea of Jesus being the sun of righteousness. We get warmth from our solar system's sun, don't we? It brings us warmth, it brings us comfort, especially in times of coldness. Jesus will be a blessing to those who serve him with warmth and comfort, a place for us to call our own. Sunlight, sunlight increases levels of serotonin in our body, it improves a person's mood. It includes vitamin D, which we know is so beneficial for so many different reasons for ourselves. So just as we are exposed to our son, Jesus, so he improves our mood, so he can lift us up, so he is beneficial for our mind, our body, our soul, all that we have, just as with sunlight. Darkness can't stay in the same space as sunlight. Despite the distance our solar system sun is away, if there is nothing standing between it and you, you are bathed in sunlight. It's only when something comes between us and the sun that casts a shadow on us and we find ourselves in different degrees of darkness. Darkness can't share the same space as light just as it is with Jesus. He is our son of righteousness. As he is with us, then the devil cannot be with us also. He makes the darkness flee. We know with plants, sun gives birth to life. It grows. Jesus, when he is shining on us, we have life. We are able to grow in him, to flourish, to bear fruit, to bear joy, peace, patience, self-control, goodness, kindness, <coughs> gentleness, faithfulness. The son of righteousness in his blessings grows us. But if we don't find ourselves on the right side of that line he's drawn in the sands. The sun can have another effect if we uh, if we don't approach our solar system sun in the right way, especially down here at the beach. We know if we don't approach it in the right way, then we will find effects on us. We will get sunburnt. We can have heat stroke, all these sorts of things. If we don't approach our God in the right way, with open, serving hearts, it can have a detrimental effect on us. If we start to think that we're the centre of the universe, like once we thought the moon, we can tell the moon, goes around the earth, we must be the centre of the universe. And then they discover, no, we rotate around something greater. If we try and put ourselves in the centre of the universe, if, we tr- if you imagine putting ourselves in our solar system, sun's place, we will burn up and we will die. We won't even get close to the position the sun has before that occurs. If we seek to serve ourselves instead of serving God, putting ourselves in the place that he deserves, then I think we can tell what the effect will be for us. The truth is that the best is yet to come. But it's for those who choose it. Who choose to live in a way that Jesus would distinguish us being on his side of the line that he's drawn in the sand. The reality is that when the Son of God rises one more time, it's either going to be a blessing or it's going to be a disaster. We might not know what the second coming will be like. We might not know when the second coming is, but we know what we need to do to be found on the right side of the line. So who are you going to serve? Let me pray. And just as we're about to pray, I do want to encourage you You know, the end of Malachi isn't an easy word for us to sit in, to finish with. It perhaps is challenging of our motivations, of our actions, of the purpose that we live by. And perhaps a challenge to do more than just believe. To make sure that it is obvious in our lives. To internalise and make sure it is actually living out in our lives. Because belief needs to be lived out. If, if that is a challenge for you, I pray and I want to encourage you this morning to give it over to God this morning. Father God, over these many weeks we're we, we here and we know the place the Israelites were in. But God, you are ever always willing to bring them back in, give another opportunity. And God, we sit under your word, the authority that you have. And God, we hear what you say. Help us search ourselves to know what are the motivations we live in. Who are we serving? And God, help us come before you. Because we know you are gracious. We know you are loving. And you're always waiting for us. Lord help us Lord for those who need to this morning to make the commitment God you know what it's time I put you first Lord we give that commitment to you you are God you are the one I believe in and so Lord I seek to serve you it's in your name we pray Amen